Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student-athletes upside down. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello. What comes to your mind when you hear the word carbon? You may picture the beauty and richness of life on Earth. We are, after all, carbon-based life forms. Without carbon chemistry, there would be no life on this planet. But your thoughts might also turn to smoking factory towers, traffic pollution, decimated rainforests and raging seas wrought by the latest climate-related disaster. When a carbon atom bonds to two oxygen atoms, it becomes carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas, the rapidly rising concentrations of which in the atmosphere are causing our planet to warm towards catastrophic levels. Carbon has become a dirty word in the current climate. As COP28 draws to a close, the focus has been squarely on global emissions, including CO2. But my guest today is on a mission to change how we think about this compound – Mercedes Moroto Vallo wants to turn this climate-changing gas into a climate-saving one, capturing it from the air and converting it into fuel, or finding ways to lock it safely away. For Mercedes, who is director of the Research Centre for Carbon Solutions at Heriot Watt University and the UK's decarbonisation champion, making CO2 useful is the holy grail. Today she's sitting opposite me in the studio, holding a small piece of rock in her hand. We'll talk about why a little later. But first, Professor Mercedes Morotovella, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Now, Mercedes, asking you your age might seem as a a rather rude first question, (laughs) but I'm going to start off with that anyway, because I'm told you have a good retort. My answer is probably unusual because I refer to the year I was born and the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, and that was 326 parts per million, PPMs as we call them, over my lifetime, and and I think the audience, they have to figure out how old I am now, there's been a close to 100 PPMs of CO2 we have increased in the atmosphere. So is that a lot? The 200 years before that, all the way to the pre-industrial revolution, we only went up 50 PPMs. Mm. So it's a lot more of CO2 in the atmosphere. There's a graph people can look up online if they want to see what uh, what the parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere was when they were born. I'm a few years older than you, so mine was, I think, 318. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was, yes. <laughs> You've worked for 20 years searching for practical answers to the climate crisis, and in particular how we solve this problem of CO2 in the atmosphere. But as I mentioned in my introduction, you believe we all need to rethink how we see CO2. CO2 and carbon is something that we need. Our bodies are over 18% carbon. Um, We use carbon for many products, for food, for crumpets, if you love them in the morning. (laughs) Uh, We use them for drinks, for beer, even for wine. Um, So it's really understanding that carbon in itself is not the bad thing. It's when we are putting too much out of it and the source that it comes from. We are upsetting the carbon cycle, uh, but also we need to realise that we actually can take that carbon dioxide and convert it into something useful. We also hear a lot these days about decarbonisation. What is that fundamentally? We take CO2, whether it's the excess CO2 that we have in the atmosphere 
or we take it from what we call point sources, whether it's from um, heavy energy industries or it's from power industries, and then we take that CO2 that is produced in small concentrations, we purify, we separate, isolate it, and then we transport it and we use it for applications, as we said before, or we can store it permanently as well. Now, the term that I really think we should be using is really defossilization, okay. um, because we are not going to get rid of all the carbon. We do not want to get rid of all the carbon, in fact. Uh, what we do want is to get rid of the carbon that comes from fossil fuels. Now, your research, Mercedes, spans chemistry, engineering and climate change. And you say you're a solutions scientist. What drives you? I think it comes a little bit of um, a maternal instinct. I, I may say here, you know, I, I have a family and, and one, of the, my big, one of my big goals in life is really to leave a planet the way I found it. Um, and I think it's really for future generations where I feel uh, that commitment and, and that mm. passion for making it happen. Okay, Mercedes Morota Valla, let's get back to the beginning. Tell me where you were born. So I was born in uh, Vitoria Gasteiz, that's the capital of Basque Country uh, in Spain. It was actually the third city in Europe that got the award as a green city, but it's also a city that actually has quite a lot of industry and, and derives a lot of their economic growth from industry. And maybe without thinking about it at the time, but maybe um, make me realise that you can, you can have a bit of both. It's possible to reach a little bit of a equilibrium. And as a child growing up, I hear you had a thirst for knowledge from a young age. You, you, you're the, the kid who wanted to know everything. Yes, I think I was that one. <laughs> <laughs> Once you came and settled in the UK, you still had this thirst for knowledge, wanting to have all the information available, but you sometimes found the Scottish accent a bit of a challenge to understand. So the plane landed in London and, and I thought, I think I can manage this. And then it was the next, my connecting flight um, London to Glasgow. And when we landed in Glasgow and then I went to get my bags, I have to check whether I actually flew to Glasgow. I was going into other country because I couldn't understand when they were talking to me, you know. And um, I made new friends in, in the university. Sometimes I just couldn't follow, even if, if they tried to slow down for me. So I kept saying many times, apparently, sorry, I have missed some information, you know, again, because I wanted to know everything that has been said <laughs> or discussed. And I guess I said that so often uh, that then when my birthday came a couple of months later after arriving, they bought me a little kind of figurine. It's a Scotsman uh, with a little bottle of, of whiskey and uh, they have engraved in there. Sorry, I have missed some I've information. Missed some information. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take you back to Spain to your childhood. Tell me about your parents, Evelino and Consuelo. What did they do? My father was um, part of a working for a civil servant and my mother was uh, at home, but she's also a tailor. But there was no, they haven't had the opportunity to go to university. So they haven't really been engaged into the scientific world or, or research. But the fact that they were oblivious to that, you know, that for them that was something their daughter wanted to do. So mm. what? Mm. why not? Um, I think probably was the, the biggest push they could give me behind to make all this happen. I gather while they probably didn't quite know what you did, they did see you in action. They came to one of your talks. Yes, that's, that's right. Um, and, and probably I'm not sure they completely still understand to these days everything that I do. But after being in Scotland, I was for a number of years in, in America and they came to visit and I was giving a presentation in a conference related to a project. And then at the end of the, the conference, at the end of the presentation, I went and asked them what they thought what was their experience. And, and actually, their biggest reflection was uh, that the room was basically all full of um, gentlemen much older than me. And it was at that point that they realized that 
I was working in an environment that traditionally mm. um, it hasn't been an environment for, for women. Mm. Well, we've talked a lot on this programme over the years about the challenge of, of, of diversity in science and how certain fields are still so, so male-dominated. Um, I gather the example you've set for your three sons meant that they had rather different expectations. Yes, uh, they, they actually, for them to have uh, uh, their mum being, you know, working in engineering, in science, you know, talking math sometimes uh, during the, during lunch, and for them that's, that's actually, they find it quite normal. They think that's, that's the way things are. So when my oldest son was in the last years of uh, high school and, and he was taking uh, advanced physics, um, and he came home and we said, you know, how was your first day in advanced physics, advanced maths? And, and he said, well, mum, there are no girls in my class. And he was taken back. Um, so for them, it's, it's actually they come in from the opposite angle. And were there moments later in your career where you felt this very strongly? Yes, I think it was later on when I, I came more to realise in some cases I was the first female they have appointed in, in the department as it was in, in my first uh, academic role at Penn State University. And also then the first one who actually went on maternity leave and, and they have to check what were the, the guidelines to have an academic colleague going on maternity leave. So I think all that came later on as I was going through the process realising that I was uh, the first one in, in some of those appointments. You went to university in Bilbao where you mm -hmm. studied applied chemistry, uh, but a friend who studied in the UK got you thinking, and as you described earlier, you decided to do part of your degree in the UK, in Scotland, in fact, in Strathclyde. Yes. And you never went back. Yes, and I think that's, um, um, you know, if, if my mother listens to this part of the programme, she will remind me that that's not the deal, you know. So the deal, <laughs> it was, we were going, I was going to be for, for nine months, and then I was going to go back to Spain and finish my degree there. You then stayed on at the University of Strathclyde to do your PhD. What did you work on there? So uh, in my PhD, um, I work with uh, particular types of coals that actually they soften when you heat them up, and then they resolidify again. And if they go through that process, uh, you can use them to produce metallurgical coke for blast furnaces and for iron ore uh, production. It's interesting that you started off working on, on fossil fuels, perhaps a sign of the times back then, but you later moved into more environmental research. What prompted that? I think it was uh, starting with my PhD. I started slowly become aware of some of the environmental challenges, some of the, the missions that we created when we go through all this process. And, and I start focusing more in in terms of how we can look at these environmental challenges. Well, after your PhD, Mercedes, you took up research positions in the US, first at University of Kentucky, then at Penn State, Pennsylvania State University, working on energy, but now looking at different environmental aspects. Yes, correct. So I started looking um, around uh, what waste residues we have uh, when we use fossil fuels, how we can minimise them. I started looking at um, trace metals, mercury emissions, um, as well coming from the use of fossil fuels and then very soon as well start working on carbon dioxide emissions so that was something that was not quite considered a challenge back then um, it was something that we were aware of that we were producing CO2 emissions uh, but there wasn't definitely not all this interest that we have nowadays uh, back mm. then and and my very first project on CO2 and CO2 mitigation processes goes back to 2001, so well over 20 years. That's a really long time. So that was the, sort of the early um, research into carbon capture, yes. you know, how we'd extract CO2 from the atmosphere. 
Um, so at that point, we were not considering as much extracted from the atmosphere. It was more about taking CO2 from point sources, like from Where power they're produced in, Correct, in, in yes, industry. From, from right. power generation. And then later on, we shift more towards what we call energy-intensive industries, like uh, production of cement or steel. Um, but once we separate it and we have it concentrated at very, very high purities, then the next steps are uh, what can we use it for? Or in mm. some cases, how can we store it permanently and, and safely? Mm. And this is, as you say, going back 20 years. It was quite a niche area back then, wasn't it? It was indeed. I mean, I remember going to one of these first greenhouse technology conference and we were literally a couple of hundred people. Uh, now this conference probably they are around the 2,000 people. It's good to see that there's a lot more traction now in such an important challenge. As I mentioned in my introduction, you've brought with you a small piece of rock. Uh, now, while I do like gifts, I'm, I'm intrigued to know what's so interesting about this rock. So this little piece of rock is the size of a domino. And what we have been able is to actually lock CO2 into that. And if you look at this domino piece, it's probably in the order of about uh, five litres of CO2. Mm. So we have been able to take CO2 that is on a gaseous form actually here where we are now. Um, it's part of the air that, that we are breathing. But we have been able to take that CO2 and actually react it with a mineral and taken it from a gas into a solid form. So it's five litres when it's in... Gas, gas form. form, yes. Uh, of course, once you turn it to a solid, it's, I mean, that, as you say, it's the size of a domino. It's tiny. Yes. And so it, it's kept safely within that rock? It's, it's, it's not leaking out? No, it's not. In fact, this process happens naturally. That's the way rocks weather. But that's a process that happens over geological time frames, you know, hundreds of millions of years we are talking here. Uh, so what we have done here is understanding, again, the, the physical chemistry fundamentals of how rocks weather. And then we have taken those and accelerate them and make them happen into an industrial process. So now we are talking about minutes, hours, processes. Rather than millions of years. Correct, yes. So, so much, much faster. And is, is, is there a use to it once it's stored in the rock in this way? Yes, uh, you can use it, for instance, for a road construction. Or you can also just keep it the way it is because, you know, it's safely a store. It's not going to come out. So it mm. will be there uh, forever, really. What is this process actually called? Uh, this process is called mineralization because, in essence, we take CO2 and we convert it into a mineral. Uh, so okay. we mineralize the CO2. How did the project come about? Um, so this project started back uh, when I was in, in America. Um, I was uh, based at the Penn State University. Uh, I was assistant professor there. And I was um, discussing with uh, colleagues working in the Department of Energy. And they were also looking at opportunities to what to do with the CO2. And are these materials being used now? Um, so these materials can be used, yes. So there are some uh, industries and companies that they have commercialised processes based on, on what we just discussed. OK. As you mentioned, this project started in the US when your academic career was really taking shape uh, in the late 90s, early noughties, as was your personal life. You were married in 2001 to John, a Norwegian engineer who you'd met at, uh, as a student back in Glasgow. And you had your first child in 2003, which prompted a move back to the UK. Yes, uh, it did. Um, so um, it was really having, um, you know, start having a family and, and feeling maybe being a bit far away from, you know, all the, the relatives and, and their grandparents. And, uh, and we just felt like we wanted to be closer to home. We never made it all the way back home to, to some extent, but it's definitely closer. 
you had two more children back in the UK where you were based at this point at the University of Nottingham. And I understand that your family's different nationalities have caused some confusion in the past. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so this is uh, we were actually visiting um, Pisa, the Incline Tower, and probably. And I love the way there. that you call it the Incline Tower, okay, rather than the Leaning Tower. <laughs> okay, <but it's> fantastic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, and and we were there, and and if you've been there, there is a museum just basically yes. next to the tower. So sometimes you know when you go into a museum and they're doing a little bit of a survey and. Um, she asked the question, so which country are you from? And my oldest son, he kind of, you know, took a step forward and said, well, um, so my mom is Spanish, my dad is Norwegian, I am American, and my brothers were born in England. Um, so at this point, obviously, that was quite an unexpected answer. Um, so then the, the lady who was doing the survey looked at us with a very serious face, looked at my husband and me and ask, are you a family? Right, so, so that was probably took us a little bit back because it's probably not the conventional one, but we are a family. A real global <laughs> a, a global family. family with very colourful passports. I, I like to say we are a United Nations family. <laughs> well, your academic career was flourishing uh, at this time with promotions po- following quickly. And I believe this led to an amusing moment at an away day with university colleagues. Yes, that's right. So um, this uh, goes back to when I was in university of Nottingham and things were very well within less than three years being there I was advised to go for promotion so I, I applied for promotion and um, and we have an away day and the Pro Vice Chancellor for Research came to give the, the opening remarks of the day and what we should be looking in terms of research strategy he came over to me and say congratulations Mercedes and that day was my birthday so I thought that was a really nice touch right so I said thank you very much and then uh, he continued and um, he went on and said, um, very well done. And at that point I started thinking, well, I haven't really done much. It's become a year older. Um, and then he kept on saying, your application was really strong. And then it's when the moment clicked and I thought, oh, this is not, he's not saying happy birthday. He's saying I've got promoted to professor. But it was a, it was a nice way to actually find out I have been promoted to professor. Now, I try never to ask a female guest a question that I wouldn't ask a male counterpart, but I know you have a good answer to this. Do you ever find it hard to have a work-life balance? So I don't have a work-life balance. I think most of my life I have an intentionally unbalanced work life and <laughs> um, for me it's, it has worked the way things have worked out because I intentionally put the emphasis in what I thought it was more important. At that, that, at that time. I want to turn to another project you've worked on. Uh, this one's about 3D printing yep. of so-called smart rocks that can, can feed us data about what's happening deep underground. Uh, what's that about? Um, so, as you said, deep underground, there are many, many processes that happen that control the way that then water moves in rivers, control how nutrients uh, get to actually our crops, uh, control how we can store CO2 underground. Many of those processes happen deep underground. We cannot really see them. We did replicas, 3D replicas of rocks. So uh, this is using 3D printing? Yes, so it's, it's an advanced 3D printing with lasers, so it's, it's quite advanced processes that we follow there from manufacturing. Uh, but we not only stopped there, what we did is we embedded sensors as we were doing this printing process. And then what that was able to give us for really the very first time is real-time data as fluids move through a, through a porous space. So, so you, you make these rocks, you, you create them, embed in them these electronic sensors that can send you data. What then you, you, 
bury them no we don't no 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 we don't bury them in essence what then we do is we put them under conditions of pressure temperature oh, everything else that will be what they see if they were underground Sim- simulating what it Correct. would be like deep yes. underground so we simulate okay. what is deep underground on a structure that is actually a replica of, of an underground rock um, so that's why we call them that is smart rocks because we can communicate with them and how can this then be used once you know for instance um, how fluids go through these rocks, then you can start looking at optimizing how nutrients could go through water to enhance crop production. Or you can think about the best places to store CO2 in a safe manner because you understand what's going to happen when you put it underground. Fascinating stuff. Well, I, and I certainly I know there's another research project you're working on developing the aviation fuel of, of, of the future. And this will be an environmentally sustainable replacement, I guess, to what, what we have now. Tell me a bit about this project. The aviation sector is actually one of the most, most challenging sectors to to decarbonize. So what we are doing in, in this project is we are producing a fuel that at the point of when you have it by the wing of the plane has the same properties, but the process we have followed to produce it actually consumes CO2 as opposed to produce CO2. Traditional aviation fuels, like kerosene type of fuels, uh, Jet A1, as we call them, um, they use fossil fuels and therefore there is a CO2, it's a carbon footprint. Right. Our process actually takes CO2 and embeds it into the process. So we consume CO2 as part of the manufacturing of that fuel. So what is the process? What is the chemical yes, reaction? Um, <laughs> so the, the chemical reaction that we do is uh, on one hand we have um, CO2, uh, we take it through what we call um, electrolyzers. So it's actually with water. You are able to then go into um, hydrogen. You are able to go into carbon monoxide. We also take uh, biomass waste, particularly forestry residues, and we heat them up. And then we also produce uh, carbon monoxide. We produce hydrogen. And then we mix uh, those gases, and then we react them, and we are able to produce uh, the aviation fuel. But presumably, it's still when you burn it, it's still producing more CO2. As the CO2 is captured from the atmosphere, you use it into a fuel, you release it, and you continue getting into that, that cycle. And that's really what we are looking to do here. So, so the, the CO2 that's produced as it burns is fed back in at that to, to, the, into, the, the, into the, into the, the first stage. How much of this, this fuel can you produce now? So right now we produce small quantities, and one of the things we are looking in this project is uh, how we can scale up uh, to produce larger quantities. We are talking about barrel size quantities, so we can, uh, we can go through the testing uh, that is needed to go through the process of certifying new fuel. You've been at Heriot Watt University in, in Edinburgh now since, in fact, since 2012, so over a decade. When you moved there from Nottingham, I believe you took some of your research team with you. Uh, we already have uh, built a research centre um, in Nottingham and we relocated, I think we were around 12, 13 people back then. And, and then since then we've been growing significantly. I think we probably are in the order of maybe around 80. And this is the research centre for carbon... Research Centre for Carbon Carbon Solutions. Solutions, In 2020, Mercedes, you were appointed as the UK's decarbonisation champion. What does that involve? Um, So that involves uh, working with the largest industrial clusters in the UK and help them to decarbonise. 
and do that uh, through leading the Industrial Decarbonization Research and Innovation Center, known as IDRIC for short, and really bringing all the community together of research and innovators in the UK, working with over 30 universities to make sure we accelerate the transition. So it's a big programme. What, what made you want to expand into science policy? Technologies alone are not going to make it. We need to have it frameworks that actually cover policy, regulatory frameworks, business models, and also understanding that we need to contextualize uh, solutions. A solution that works in a particular country or, or a sector and industry may not work uh, globally in other parts of the world. Is and this something you felt personally quite strongly about? Yes, I, I feel very personally because um, at the end of the day, even if we were able to, to really get down all the CO2 emissions in the UK, it's going to be a little drop in the ocean. I guess it's one thing for, for wider society to be more aware of I mean, carbon net zero, decarbonisation, uh, you know, reducing yeah. the, the CO2 in the atmosphere. But then we hear that industries, certainly fossil fuel industries, are doing very little. Do you think they are listening? I think they are listening, uh, and I think in my experience is uh, they realise they will not be continue doing the business they do now. I think also... Um, there is still not quite a lot of clarity in terms of how they can happen and how that transition will take place. And I think that's where we need to come together, all the way from you know academics, industry, policymakers, the general public, um, because there is no single bullet, uh, but also the, the path ahead can be quite challenging. I mentioned earlier the 2023 UN Climate Change Conference, COP28, has been running for the past couple of weeks in, in Dubai. You've been out there, and I should say that last week you even received an award at the event. Yes, and it was um, it was amazing. You know, it was uh, the 2023 uh, Net Zero Industries, um, uh, and it's actually led by uh, Mission Innovation Net Zero Industries. That's a global coalition of uh, countries from all over the world with a common mission of actually speeding the transition to net zero. So receiving an award in a place like COP, um, the first time this award is given, is really a, a fantastic. Proud. I'm yeah. really proud. And what were the big topics then of conversation at this latest climate change conference? So this is the, the first uh, COP uh, where uh, we have um, a global stock take. Um, global stock take means how far have we moved globally from what we said we were going to do since since the Paris Agreement. And not surprisingly, um, we are not on track. We need to ramp up our progress. We need to accelerate what we are doing. And I think that's helping in terms of even focusing more the minds and the hearts of how important is what we are doing in this decade, in these 2020s and into 2030s. How do you feel about other major events happening around the world, wars and other crises, pushing the, the debate about how we tackle the climate crisis uh, in, in, into the sidelines, onto the back burner? Sometimes we may need to visualise, like, climate change is this meteorite that is coming against the Earth. It just keeps getting closer and closer. We need to be mindful of many other challenges that we have globally, but climate change is the biggest challenge that we have now, and that meteorite is only getting closer. And if we look away, it's, uh, it's it, it still will getting still, closer. It will still get closer, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In terms of where the world is now on tackling the climate crisis, how positive do you feel about the future of the planet? I view myself as a realistic optimist and I think it's really from the point of view of knowing what we can do. This is not mission impossible. This is mission possible. Mercedes Moroto-Vala, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Thank you. 
Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Oh!